Warning! This episode of The Secret Cinema contains discussions of disturbing and adult content. So, heads up! God, you've been acting so weird lately. Look, my car just got wrecked, okay? I'm kind of freaked out. I know that, but your accents change. You don't even walk the same. Well, I walk differently? I mean, that dinner tonight, it was so beautiful. It was gorgeous, but it just wasn't you. I can't do something nice for you? I mean, it's... Wait. Isn't that your jacket? Welcome to The Secret Cinema, the podcast where we overthink the films that nobody thinks about. I am Paolo Caron, and I co-host this podcast with Carrie Chafee. Today, we're going to be covering the 2004 sci-fi thriller The Butterfly Effect, which is written and directed by Eric Bress and J. Mackie Gruber. I have a couple clips I want to play, uh, I, but I just briefly want to say that that opening clip was probably one of the only sections of the movie that I could sample that wasn't purely miserable. You'll also hear this in the music that gets played at the end of the episode. But I didn't want to start the episode off with uh, something too dark because you would think Carrie and I are monsters for how much we laugh during this episode. Uh, so I'll get into those clips, but first here's Carrie with a quick plot summary. College student Evan Treborn had a traumatic upbringing. When he discovers that by reading his childhood journals, he can revisit his past, he jumps at the opportunity. Evan tries to improve the lives of his young friends, Kaylee, Tommy, and Lenny, but finds out that changing the past isn't as easy as it seems. So I wanted to play this first clip as an illustration of the film's melodramatic, miserablest tone, but... At one point during the episode, we have a discussion about Amy Smart's performance, and this clip is a pretty solid example of that as well. Uh, the context doesn't really matter, but you'll find it out during the episode, so here's that clip. You can't hate yourself because your dad's a twisted freak. Who are you trying to convince, Evan? You come all the way back here to stir up my shit just because you have a bad memory? What do you want me to just cry on your shoulder and tell you everything's all better now? Well, fuck you, Evan. Nothing's all better, okay? Nothing ever gets better. You know, if I was so wonderful, Evan, why didn't you call me? Why did you just leave me here to rot? Now, the second clip is going to require a little context because Carrie and I, somewhere in this episode, get into a can of worms debate over the implications of certain elements of the scene. And if you don't have a clip to refresh you as to what's going on in the scene, you're going to have no idea what we're talking about. This scene is between Evan and the doctor late in the film, and it is taking place during the mental hospital timeline where Evan has been placed in the mental hospital. So here's that clip. My journals. I, I need them. So... You give them to me. It'll help a lot. It hurts me to go through this again. There are no journals. There never were. It's part of the fantasy world that your mind created to cope with the guilt of killing Katie Miller. Think, Evan. Think. 
You've created a disease that does not exist. Alternate universes with colleges and prisons and paraplegia. I want my journals, and I want them now. And I know that you got them, and you're gonna give them to me! You're not gonna hide them from me! I want them! And now, our discussion of Butterfly Effect. Alright, so with Butterfly Effect, um, this movie, I've actually probably seen it probably about 20 times now. I, start, I first saw it in high school, and it just has been a long-time fascination for me. It's pretty much one of the first movies I thought of for doing this podcast. And the, the very first time I watched it, I, my, I, I knew a girl in high school who had me over for her birthday. And it was like a pool party birthday. And we like hung out in her basement with a bunch of like, it was just a bunch of nerds and like really like friendly, sweet, nice, harmless people. And we played in the pool and ate cake and stuff like that. And then at the end of the night, this friend of mine, she was like, let's watch a movie. And she picked this movie. And so at the end of a birthday party, like, I think like eight people I went to high school with, we all sat and I saw this movie for the first time. And it's just like, it. so it's always really stuck out to me how depressing this movie is. Like the first time I watched it, it was this ostensibly for fun and in an environment where no one was <laughs> depressed or wanting to kill themselves. And... It was, there's, there's no way to watch this movie where it isn't astoundingly depressing. Way more depressing than it needs to be. Yeah, I, I think that this movie does a good job of proving that time travel is a very sad thing. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that where this movie struggles is that it's trying to argue that, you know, time travel is dangerous and it can cause severe consequences but at the same time that it's it's taking itself so seriously it allows for that seriousness to become hilarious well that's kind of missing the point really more the issue is that they could do anything and yeah. i was thinking about this during the movie they could have like one traumatic event and him go back and like try one thing and it doesn't work and so he goes and tries another thing and it could still change the yeah. past but they try to just like make his entire life and everybody's life really the worst possible life and yeah. they just build one thing after another after another and okay well we might as well get into like like the first i i wrote it down cuz the first 30 minutes of the movie is basically just an atrocity exhibition of horrible things happening to Evan, the protagonist. Okay. And, uh, in the first, within the first 10 minutes of the movie, and keep in mind, time travel doesn't actually get introduced in this movie until about halfway through. Yeah. About two, almost an yeah, hour. Yeah, the first the time he has a flashback is at minute 34. 34. But by minute eight, child pornography has taken yeah. place in the movie. And um, then soon after, okay, within 11 minutes into the movie, Evan has seen his dad beaten to death by people <laughs> at the mental institution. Yep. Um, the... Within okay, that woman that, and her baby. The woman and her baby blow up. Though, in all fairness, you don't see who no. exactly blows up. You know something really bad. That happened. baby opened the mailbox, and it's it definitely blew. Yeah, up. but I'm saying you don't see the baby. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and then um, they go to see Seven, and that guy gets the shit beaten out of him. And um, yeah, man, that 
he used a uh, a stanchion. Yeah. yeah, a stanchion to beat the shit out of that <laughs> yeah. guy. Oh, but okay, but the point the point just being that that's how this movie starts, and this is a movie that is a mainstream. Uh, blockbuster science, blockbuster science it. fiction time travel movie starring Ashton Kutcher who at this point in time really would only be famous from that 70s show and uh, Dude Where's My Car he's not really famous was he in the the remake of uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner by now god I don't know I think not yet because I read something about, I read some weird trivia about that movie earlier today, so it's, I don't think so. But, um. Yeah. I, I read online that this movie had a budget of $13 million, and it made $96 million. Oh, yeah. And it definitely, I, it seems like that premise of, like, you can go back and change your past and try it, like, that appeals to everybody. Oh, time yeah. travel movies are always successful. Everybody wants a redo. With the exception of like timeline, I think every time travel movie is <laughs> successful. Uh, even and like even like art house time travel movies. If time crimes. Time crimes. Uh, Primer, which is yeah. like pretty much in my mind. Like, Looper would probably be considered a blockbuster, right? Yeah. Oh, definitely. And even if and if we're gonna really such this idea. I feel like Groundhog Day is a fair comparison yeah. of like people like reliving events and seeing the different ways they play out. Well, and I think that you bringing up Groundhog Day is a really good comparison because in the same way that Groundhog Day is funny, it's also tragic. But this movie tries to be tragic and it ends up being funny. Yeah. Well, and that's that's okay. Yeah, we got to really just dive into the tone of this movie. Yeah. Because more than anything, I really thought about this a lot. The directing seems to be fine. The cinematography, while ugly, seems to be fine. The editing is good. Um, most of the technical elements are good. Yeah, the sound problem, is good. The problem is with the general idea of what the experience should be. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one At one point, while we were watching the movie, I, I wrote down, who is the audience for this movie. Yeah. Who, well, who, when they wrote this movie, were they like, oh man, all of my best friends are going to want to see this movie. Yeah, well, and that's what I was trying to set up before is what type of person shows up, what kind of person would show up to a time travel movie starring Ashton Kutcher and expect to see two seven-year-olds having just been forced to fuck each other by the dad yeah. of one of them, followed by Evan getting his... Dad, watching his dad get his brains beaten out of him, and then knowing that someone got killed by dynamite, and who would come into this movie? Nothing funny or enjoyable. No, no moment of pleasure occurs in this movie. I think that for at least thirty minutes. And so the the type of person who come to see an Ashton Kutcher time travel movie has to spend the first thirty minutes being like, "What the fuck is this?" Yeah. I I think that this movie is a true testament to the early 2000s and marketing and MTV because that's who saw this movie, teenagers. Oh, for sure. Teen, I mean... I watched it at a high school yeah, birthday party. Yeah. yeah, teenagers saw this movie because teenagers think time travel is awesome. Yeah, well, and they have a right to. Terminator is the big is our yeah. big time travel movie, and you pretty much can't go wrong with the, fir the, the first two 
Terminator movies. Yeah, but, yeah. But still, like, they make it look so cool, and there's got to be other good ones I'm, like, forgetting right now, but still, it just seems like such a slam dunk thing. Back to thing. the Future. Back to the Future, Jesus, yeah. <laughs> but those movies know that time travel is what's interesting. Yeah. Not... But the, the, the other thing about those movies that we just listed, again, they all have a comedic element. Yes. Like, you cheer for... Arnold Schwarzenegger, but he's got those cheesy one-liners like, I'll be back, and uh, hasta la vista, and all that. And then Marty McFly, he's he's a comedic character. Yeah. Or if if not comedic, like the first one, it, like, okay, movies where they're not exactly comedic, like Terminator or Primer, they play it straight. They're yeah. like, the drama is the time travel or the results of the time travel. Yeah. There's not all this extraneous detail. Imagine if Sarah Connor in The Terminator has, like, a subplot <laughs> about being molested by her dad, and the the Turner comes back, and he looks like her dad, and you'd be like, why, why are they doing this to us? Why, why does this have to be such a dour, negative experience? Yeah, and imagine that you had to relive it four times. Yeah, oh, man. Ugh. But after that whole opening of just dour, dour stuff, and all this, like, in theory, character building events, like these things that would really define a person, we get Ashton Kutcher as the adult version, and Ashton Kutcher, I I don't necessarily hate Ashton Kutcher, but I don't think he's a good actor, and... He, There's no arguing yeah. that he's a good actor. Okay, yeah. There is... An, I can't think of a single thing that he would... He is a good actor. He's good at playing a dumb stoner. That's why, I mean, Dude, Where's My Car is no one's idea of a great movie, but he's at least appropriate yeah. for that role. And that 70s show, the reason he got famous from that 70s show is because he's believable as the dumb stoner boyfriend. Yeah. And so having that, which is, by the, and at this point, this is what he's typecast as. He's not typecast as Demi Moore's husband or... Uh, like now ex-husband. Ex-husband or the douchey guy from camera commercials. He was like... Oh, yeah! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's the nerdy stoner guy and... Uh, not nerdy, but like handsome stoner guy. Yeah, I think he's a jock. Yeah. And so to have him show up after all this stuff and be like, yep, I'm the adult version of this victim is like so... It's such a cognitive dissonance thing that it... It completely destroys the whole well, movie. Well, <laughs> so to explain Ashton Kutcher's involvement in this, he basically got this movie made. He was an executive producer. This movie was on the blacklist for a really long time as one of those screenplays that everybody was like, why is this movie being made? It's so great. God. And then Ashton Kutcher got involved and... I wrote, I wrote, I found out that um, before Ashton Kutcher got the lead role, Joshua Jackson, Josh Hartnett, and Sean William Scott were all offered the lead role. Can you imagine this movie with Joshua Jackson? Oh my god, it would be like Fringe, basically. Yeah, this movie would be just as bad if Josh Hartnett was the lead. Oh yeah, Josh Hartnett, it would be bad in a worse way. Yes, because that's, it'd be like Black Dahlia. Yeah, well, because and that's the thing is like watching Ashton Kutcher. <laughs> Suffer is funny. <laughs> I, he's not sympathetic. I don't feel bad for him. He doesn't inherently ev evoke sympathy, and he's not a good enough actor to evoke sympathy. Yeah. Whereas at least Josh Hartnett, Josh Hartnett is just, to me, is just like a blank slate. And so it's like, 
it's like having bad things happen to someone who's like a, a coma. mannequin. Like, oh uh, yeah, a mannequin or a coma <laughs> patient. It's just, it's like, man, that ambiguous person is suffering. Well, and I feel like this movie would have been just as funny if Sean William Scott was the lead. Oh, it'd be hilarious. But he would <laughs> lean into it. He's he's inherently funny in a good way. Yeah. Okay, so I've been holding this secret over Paolo of trivia that I learned about the movie regarding the main character's name. Are you reading my notes? No, I'm not. Alright, so I found out that the main character, his name is, I mean, I, I knew this, but his name is Evan Treborn, and originally his name was going to be Chris Treborn, which... That sounds... What? Oh my god, what which, is it? Which, <laughs> if you spell it all out, is Christ Reborn. Oh, <laughs> that's awful. But they changed it so it's Event Reborn. Because his name is Evan. It's a little bit of a stretch. Event Reborn? Christ Reborn makes sense because you can... I mean, it's a person being reborn. Are events born? No. But that's about as logical as this movie yeah. gets, so, yeah. When you were saying Chris Treborn, I was like, that sounds familiar, but I was thinking of Chris Traker. Oh, from Chris Parks Traker. Rec, yeah. Which I guess doesn't really make any sense. But isn't that hokey? That's so fucking hokey. Any movie that does that, though. Like, we were talking about this before, that Face Off does it. Any dumb movie. Any movie that has, like, very referential names is a dumb movie. Yeah. Because that's a dumb, lazy, hacky move. It's like one of those things where you know, too, that the writer wrote it, and it was like, fucking nailed it. Brilliant. <laughs> I got it! Oh, when people <laughs> figure out that it's, it, he's Christ, which, oh my god, the way the movie yeah, plays try out! To, try, to, try to think about the movie in that way, that, oh that Ashton Kutcher is Jesus, because he even gets the stigmata. Yeah, oh, oh god. <laughs> It really. I, I was thinking about it a lot during this movie, trying to analyze it. I never once considered it to be a religious <laughs> allegory. That makes it so much worse. I would like to say that after watching this movie again, it does not surprise me that the people who wrote and directed this movie wrote and directed Final Destination 2. The best Final Destination 2. The best, two. because it's hilarious. It's so crazy it's and so over crazy. the top in its horrific violence that it comes back around to being 100% comedic. Yeah. Somehow. So entertaining and incredibly funny. I mean, it has some of the best fake death the scenes. Glass yes, the, the glass fall of the kid. the glass fall. The guy who gets the, killed from the, the... fence. Yeah, the fence. The, um... Oh, the woman... In, or the is, airbag woman? Yeah, but I was also even thinking the scene where they're in the elevator with oh, the guy yeah. who's carrying the box of all those amputated limbs. <laughs> yes. Oh, what? amputated limbs. That's a thing with them. Oh, man! Oh, my God, yeah. Whoa, amputated limbs. <laughs> so, um... I also learned that they are remaking the butterfly effect... For 2016, the only person who's been cast so far is a woman, and she, the only thing she's been credited as uh, is Miss India 2015. <laughs> oh my God. Are they making it in Bollywood? Is this like a Bollywood oh, version? Oh man, can you imagine a Bollywood version of Pretty Butterfly Effect? I would watch that. <laughs> I would definitely watch that. God. Well, and, and, and like, 
I hate to stereotype Bollywood movies, but part of the fun of Bollywood movies is they like pack every genre practically yeah. into every movie. And so it would be it would definitely be an improvement on this movie to just like <laughs> just completely abandon any sense of like a one given I think, tone. I think this movie would be better if it had a musical scene in it. Don't you? It'd probably lighten all the sadness. Yeah, but it would be it would be as incongruous as basically as Ashton Kutcher already is in the thing. And That's it, true. It would just it would yeah. There's not much you can do to really save this version other than like only taking the essential idea of man, I wish I could go back and fix me and my friends' childhoods through time travel. If you took just that idea yeah. and rewrote a whole movie around it. Maybe you come up with a good movie. Yeah. That at that point they do have a good idea, and then after that point nobody had any good ideas with the screenplay. Yeah. And I do think I do think you're right. I think it is a really good idea, and that it's just executed so poorly. Well, it's, but not, I it's think, not that it's executed poorly because, like I said, I think the directing is everything. Well, is okay. So let me change what I said. I think it's written. Oh, yes. I think that the writing is really where it has its weakest moments because, like you said, the first 30 minutes is just an explanation of all past events in the main character's life. So you're basically watching the first 30 minutes so that you can see the undoing of those 30 minutes in the next hour and a half. And that's not really interesting or fun to watch. Like, it's not fun to have the first 30 minutes of a movie just be sadness parade. And then the last 90 minutes is them undoing the sadness parade for more sadness parades or different kinds of sadness parades. I'm coining this term. Sadness parade. That would be the name of my emo ba band. Sadness <laughs> parade. But yeah, I think that that's why this movie is so weird and why I don't know who they were trying to target this mo movie to because the first 30 minutes just throws off the movie entirely. Yeah, you... More bad... More individual bad things happen in this movie than happen in funny games. Oh, yeah. In, in funny games, there's, like, the threat of violence... But and also a dog dies in funny games yeah. too. But um, it's more horrific in Butterfly Effect when the dog dies than in funny games. That poor dog. And um, it really pushes it. Like, there is a certain level of violence that goes beyond being like depressing. I mean, and this is all depressing violence. But at a certain point, any person would be numb to it. Any person would get numb to this amount of violence. And there's there's no real character development. Yeah. People are only the collection of yeah, what they what, lived through. What there's, do we know about Lenny? What do we know about anybody? Yeah. I was thinking you can't... What is... Okay, here's an experiment. Can you describe Evan's personality, the main character, without describing Ashton Kutcher's personality? Um... Only child. There you go. And then <laughs> Kaylee. I think, I think that's the only yeah. thing I can say about Evan. It's only child and his dad's crazy. His dad is crazy. And but yeah, I mean, 
There's even that scene when after he comes back, I can't remember why he what what he fixed. But he comes back, and the doctor and his mom are like, Oh, man, you have so many memories in your frontal cortex, blah, blah, blah. And he's acting like a completely different person. Yeah, he's just, like, playing around the wheelchair, being like, I know this, I know this. I gained 40, it was, I gained 40 years of memories in one year. <laughs> something like that. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Which, by the way, that doctor only exists for exposition. Like, yeah. there's, there's no plot function for that doctor at all. Yeah. He only is like, this is highly illogical that this is happening, and that's it. Yeah, you're right, though, but, well, yeah, what do we know about Kaylee? We, basically, what I know about Kaylee is she's passive as shit, and Yeah, she, if there's ever a character who had no agency, it's Kaylee. Yeah. Well, and something you said in the movie I wrote down... While we were watching it, you said that all of the characters are so resigned to their fates. Yeah. And basically, it's Ashton Kutcher's job to change their fates instead of, you know, taking initiative in their own lives. Yeah, like, the one the one point where Tommy dies because he gets, he gets stabbed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in uh, the back. In the back, yeah. Wonderful. Uh, well, after that happens, Kaylee loses her brother. And she's with her horrible father, uh, but supposedly by this... We'll have to get into this, but supposedly he's not attacking her anymore because uh, baby Evan yelled at him. But so her brother dies, and then she just goes and becomes a prostitute. Like, nothing seems to make her be a prostitute. Like, she's, like, hitchhiking, and you see a, a scary, bald guy with sunglasses in a van be like, hey, you need a ride? And then... She's just, like, the yeah. world's scummiest prostitute ever. Yeah. Like, she has that she has that scar on her face, and um, she's, like, hiding. She, like, drapes that magazine over the heroin needles, and she's, like, like just, like, rubbing her prostitutiness in his face. <laughs> <laughs> face prostitutiness? It's just so overt. Like... They, like, really... It's I like, will say this. I think one of the only people who did a great job in this movie was Amy Smart. Yeah. And Amy Smart is awesome. I wish she would get better work. I wish that people would use her better. Because the only other movie I can think of that she's in that I really like her is Rat Race. And oh Rat man. Race is so bad. Yeah, the only movie I could think of her being in is Mirror. And oh, I don't think I've seen. I've that. never seen it, but it's bad. <laughs> it's like, I I feel pretty confident in making that assumption. She was in Justified. Yes, and, and she was good on Justified. She's great in Justified. But she's a lot so... of bad, a lot of people from bad movies have been good at Justified. Yeah. See also Neil McDonough, who is awesome on Justified and is terrible in I Know Who Killed Me and Eighty Eight Minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Amy Smart is so great in the movie. She gives Kaylee some some depth, even she though tries. I she mean, tries. I the mean, screenplay really fights it, but she at least like she's like, well, okay, this tone is all over the place, so I might as well just like be really melodramatic. Yeah, and it's a smart choice for this because, like we said, Ashton Kutcher basically just is himself and leaves no impression, whereas like. Amy Smart really makes uh, Kaylee uh, just a depressing train wreck of yeah. a character. And she and she changes Kaylee based on Kaylee's circumstances in whatever reality that 
they're in. Yeah, actually, there's that really great scene where the first time Evan comes to see her before the time traveling starts, and the, he has that scene where he ambushes her outside the restaurant and talks to her, and you actually can see on her face the shift in like, oh wow, what's he doing here? All right, I guess I guess I'll see where this goes. To like the the moment when it shifts for her and starts becoming awful. Like yeah. she actually plays that scene with like five different tears of reaction to yeah. it. Which, yeah, I, I mean, I, I didn't give her credit for it, but yeah, she actually does try really hard in this. Harder than fucking everybody else. Yeah. For sure. Uh, and like, I also do want to give a shout out for Eric Stoltz, who is... He's not doesn't really have a lot that he has to do here, but he's perfectly cast. It's oh, like yeah. it's like John Lithgow in a Brian De Palma movie in terms yeah. of how appropriate the actor is for the material. Where it just Eric Stoltz is so appropriate as like a scummy guy. That's why he's good as the drug dealer in Pulp Fiction and the the slimy professor in Rules of Attraction. Is and that his typecast to be it, like just? Greasy. It must be. I can't think of like a like a heartwarming Eric Stoltz performance. Yeah. But hey, that's his type, and he does it well. He fits in when he when eight minutes in the movie when he's like making children fuck each other. You believe it instantly. <laughs> it's not like whoa, what a weird. I shouldn't laugh, but yeah, no, you're it's, right. You just like they show that shot where he's like drinking whiskey and there's like a lens flare, and it's like oh, he's he is a pedophile. Yeah, it's so believable. He even drinks and like he calls like he's like when he's like yelling at the kids, he just like. He, he really hits that, like, note of, like, alcoholic pedophile that he yeah. has to do. He, he sells it. So, here's another thing. I know where you've you've said that you think that the directing and, and all of the technical aspects are pretty good. But I'll say this. When they do flashback to Evan's memories, like, if after he reads a passage in his journal and he flashes back to you know, whatever the memory is. The directing does not do a great job of showing the scene from Evan's point of view. Yeah. And that's the whole point, isn't it? That Evan is there and he's there again. So he's got a fresh perspective um, because he's actually however many years older than he is in the memory. And... They, they still don't show the memory from his perspective. Like, many times it's from Kaylee's perspective or Lenny's perspective. Is it, though? Well, it's it's more of an... Yes, yeah, it's, it's really just omniscient. Yeah, it, it is. But if the whole point is that Evan is supposed to be actively changing the memory, shouldn't it, it at least focus on Evan? It does. I would say it does. Because, I, all right. Because as soon as it comes back, it starts, I mean, it's lazy, but it starts on his face and he's like, I got to do something. And then it'll kind of cut to like what we've seen in the scene before. And he'll be like, that's a fast fuck bag or whatever. And it'll go into the, <laughs> the scene where he's, he calls Eric Stoltz a fuck bag. And he's like, Eric Stoltz is like, how are you doing this? <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. <gasps> yeah. What he says, I wrote it down. He says, what is, what's happening? How are you doing this? <laughs> <laughs> it's such a weird reaction. But yeah, so it kind of does. It just, the movie set out too many things for itself to accomplish. And so with those scenes, it's, it's, it's mostly just like 
kind of half-assing the point of view because it has so much exposition baggage to get through. Yeah. Because it can't just be like, all right, I'll read this and go back and do it, and then I'll come back and it's like this. It has to be like, all right, I come back and instantly have to do the change. Like, there's no... You can't, like, read... And it's not like, uh, what's that book? 11, 22, 1963. Yeah. Where he goes back and he has to like assimilate into the world he traveled back into. That's he true. He never assimilates back into the no, world. No, he immediately goes into the memory he wants to change. And then he also acts just like his present day self. He never tries to pretend to be a kid or like, like the scene where he travels back and makes Lenny stab Tommy, he instantly doesn't tell them what's going on. He just is like, you get a weapon, you're going to need it. And then they run into the setup that they knew is coming because Kaylee still gets hit and left on the ground. So he doesn't warn her to not get hit. And they don't take but another route. But he's supposed to be this smart guy that's acing all of his midterms. Yeah. And- and doing a great job. He doesn't seem that He's smart. Like psychology, which Jesus, what a joke in yeah. this movie. Okay, I wanna I wanna touch on this. The blackouts that are in his journals, do those only exist as like wormholes for him to time travel back? All right. Since you're gonna bring that up, we just have to dive into time travel because once we start unraveling this, it's just going to lead into a bunch of other things, and I have so much to say on this. All right, I can't wait. So, okay, first of all, before we even answer your question, I didn't really appreciate until watching this time, but he doesn't only travel when there are blackouts. Like, towards the end of the movie, yeah. he just starts traveling whenever. Like, any memory can make him tra- time travel, and then it stops being his journal and just like, watches that movie, because he's yeah. like, my dad traveled with photographs. With photographs, I can yeah. do moving photographs. But, so... <laughs> so at any point, he could have traveled back to do anything. He could have traveled back and done the frequency. Uh, <laughs> he could have done the frequency thing where he goes back and is like, "Invest your money in Yahoo. Uh, yeah. Yahoo's your thing," and then been rich and then bought everybody's freedom and happy. And he, like, yeah, he why didn't a, he do that? He could have done a lot of stuff. He, uh, yeah, he didn't necessarily need to go back to those horrible moments as proven by the end of the movie when he does it he solves run by not going back to the horrible moments by going back to like a good moment yeah. and then making it a horrible moment essentially Jeez. and so i that's the thing i wanted to get into is okay read the what you wrote down the chaos theory yeah the i wrote it down so, this is the definition of the actual butterfly effect according to chaos theory. Butterfly effect is the sensitive dependence on initial conditions in which a small change in one state of a deterministic nonlinear system can result in large differences in a later state. Or, as they simplify it, the flap of a butterfly's wings on one side of the world could cause a hurricane on the other side. I like, think they use the word typhoon. Typhoon, sorry. Yes, uh, get sorry, it right. Sorry to be Anglo-centric. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, so, yeah, it's the idea that, like, a little change changes everything. If you've seen the Simpsons episode where Homer puts plutonium in the toaster and travels through time, that is exactly the butterfly effect in that episode where he steps on a bug and comes back and everything's different. So this movie opens with that and doesn't even bother to get right the fact that when he goes through time, all of his journals stay the same. 
His life ah. is exactly the same, except the one moment changes. Because you notice when they do those flashbacks afterwards, they'll like the one where he he yells at the uh, the dad and says like, "Don't make your daughter fuck other children." Don't yeah. be a child pornographer. And they show, like, time-changing, and the dog-killing thing still happens. They still end up in that exact situation. The exact same thing happens. And um, and it, everything plays out the same way. And he still has the journals, and he's still able to go back and read through and be like, yep, this memory. Even though that memory wouldn't exist, or it would be different. It would be significantly different. Yeah. Based on the rules of the movie itself. But... Anytime anything changes, like, okay, even remember at the very end of the movie when he, he goes back all the way to when he meets Kaylee and he says, like, I'm going to kill you. And so they're never, spoiler, they, never become, they never become friends and therefore she is saved and everything works out for everybody. And so he, at the very end, he and Lenny, they go to like a some dump um, in New York and they throw all of his journals. Oh, Yeah. He what? Why would he have those journals? He didn't start blacking out until after he and Kaylee were friends, and so presumably he never blacks out. None of the things that caused him to black out happen. Man. But he still has all of those journals, and he started writing those journals because he started blacking out. But he so he burns them. So they do they travel separate from time? Like he and the journals always travel through time together, or? Did they more likely? But not- that. But then, in the scenario where he's in the mental hospital, they're like, "No, those journals don't exist. Yeah. You made them up." So yeah, it kind of supports what you're saying. But even though, but he says that, but he's like stories about you being a paraplegic, and he tells him all these things. But if what happened happened, which is that he opened the mailbox and his arms got blown off. No, wait, sorry. I'm confusing my timeline. No, no, no. Um, I understand what you're saying. Okay. She, Kaylee gets blown up, but he, by that point, was doing uh, journal entries, so there would be a journal. There at least wait, be like... hold on. Right. So, he goes back in time. He wants to scare Kaylee's dad. He ends up killing Kaylee with a dynamite stick. <laughs> 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 Not funny. And he then fast forwards, you know, to present time and he's in a mental hospital and they're saying that he doesn't have the journals, but he remembers everything from his past life and he told his doctors, oh yeah, I used to be a paraplegic and I uh, was in a sorority house. No, wait, hold hold on. on. Let me finish. I was, me, you interrupted me on but, a point about that very thing, though. Okay. Which is that, how could he have told his doctor about all that stuff? Because when he's having that conversation with his doctor, he's just come back from traveling through time. There's no chance for him to yes, ever run that up. exactly. But even <laughs> further, to, to, to go even further, if he, in that time period where they fast forward to present time, and he told his doctor all of those things... Why, in the earlier moments when he goes back in time to change an event and he remembers everything, why doesn't he change things like his dog getting murdered or anything like the mailbox getting blown up or anything like that? Because he clearly remembers it. 
Why? Why? He can tell his doctor that he was a paraplegic and all this stuff in a past life, but he can't remember to not blow up a baby and her mom with a, a stick of dynamite or get his dog killed by having it set on fire. You completely lost me with your point. I <laughs> like, did? I don't have any idea of what you're getting at. Because, yeah, he would... He would... Uh, what I'm, what I'm saying yeah. is... Okay, so he can remember everything from his past, like, time travel, travel things, right? Yes. So in the last time travel moment where he's in the mental institution and the doctor's like, you've already told me about how you were paraplegic and you were in jail and you were in a sorority house with your girlfriend. None of that happened. So he remembers it all. Yeah. Well, before that moment in the movie, he traveled back in time and changed things like the child pornography thing. But like you said... He failed to change his dog getting murdered and uh, the mailbox exploding. Why didn't he change those things as well if he couldn't remember everything that happened? Well, that's why I'm confused about what you're trying to argue because in the reality uh, where he's in the mental hospital after blowing up Kaylee, the dog dying... And the mailbox blowing up don't happen in right, that timeline. Right, right. They don't happen in that timeline, but they happen in the earlier timelines, and he did nothing about it. But he was trying to. That's like the whole plot of the movie, is that he tries to do some other but, things. He just does stupid things that don't make any sense. But, but he doesn't try to change them. Well, I guess I guess I don't understand then, because... The, the logic of the movie, because he can only change one memory at a time, and then he just has to, like... Fast forward to the future? Yeah, that's that's when I when I used that Simpsons episode, that was exactly how this movie All works. Right. That's and that's what butterfly effect literally means is the littlest thing. Yeah. The tiny little thing. And so the idea that like just by going back to that memory and doing one thing different and making it so it's not a bad thing or not a bad thing in the way it was a bad thing should change everything. And usually, too, he, like, it happens and he immediately wakes up out of it. Like, just... Yeah, okay, but, okay, I get that. I understand that. But at the same time, so in the, the timeline where he wakes up in the mental hospital... And the doctor's like, you've been telling me all this crazy stuff. So he clearly changed something from the the moment that he changed the memory to the fast forward. Why couldn't he change other things in the other timelines? No, my point is that him, the doctor knowing all that stuff is so impossible that it like creates like it creates something that can't be solved because right. it couldn't he couldn't tell him that stuff yeah there's no opportunity for him to have had that conversation with him he wouldn't have had it prior to coming back from time traveling because prior to coming back there it wouldn't go. have been okay. in his memory and so that's what i was saying like after he blows up kaylee he's in the mental institution up to the point where normal evan goes into his body okay so it's like that's what i was saying that's why we're so confused is that it just makes no sense yeah it, like yeah i guess that's the takeaway yeah. is it doesn't make any sense it doesn't hold up um i feel like i had some more okay the drawing scene remember the scene where he travels back oh, to his yes. classroom and he makes the drawing yes that is 
I just for time travel nerds, that's the bootstrap paradox. That is the idea of the whole plot is basically started by, I mean, besides the Kaylee stuff, he his mom is dropping him off at school very early on when he's like seven years old. Yep. And the principal is like out of nowhere, just like jumps <laughs> in front of the car yeah. and is like, you got to come in here now. Uh, and shows the mom this drawing he made of him stabbing the neo-Nazis that he later stabs in the prison. Yeah. Um, so, and so when he goes back later, when he's in the prison and he goes to make the stigmata, he does that drawing. Yeah. I, Why I, does he do that drawing other than for plot purposes? Is there any reason for him to make that drawing other than because the plot demands it because it needs to exist? That also confuses the time travel thing again because... The way it's presented at the beginning of the movie, we already see that drawing, so has he already time-traveled? Not to mention, we also see him do the thing with the knife, too. Yeah, Even though tons of stuff is happening by that point. But also, if he did that drawing, because remember, the drawing exists in, like, the normal timeline, but when he goes back in time and makes that drawing, he then gives himself stigmata, and he doesn't have stigmata in any part except for that brief moment. Yeah, and so, yeah, it really, that's what I was saying when I was watching the movie, it drove me crazy how little they followed any logic or rules to their time travel at all. It was just literally whatever scenario they wanted to happen, they just justified it by like saying like, yeah, it, this yeah. is how it played. Well, and when they, when he got the stigmata, did you notice that when they fast forwarded to the present, they didn't insert any memories of him like in the hospital yeah. or his mom in <laughs> child protective services? Or anything nerve like damage that. or anything. Yeah, jeez. Yeah. I like how he was cool with having stigmatas, but he couldn't handle not having arms. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a big difference. It Gary. is a big difference, but at the same time, yeah, he really couldn't handle having he, arms. He he only not he was without arms for less than twenty four hours, and he tried to kill himself. Whereas, like when he was responsible for someone else killing themselves. He was just like, oh my god, I gotta time travel back and fix this. He, like, couldn't, he, he just, he completely gave up. It's, again, what we're saying, like, nobody has any will to live in this movie. Unless yeah. they, unless supernatural forces <laughs> insist on it. I would like to see a white, trashier version of this movie. <laughs> It'd be tough. It'd be really tough. It would be tough, but I think it would be great. The milieu is there, yeah. Even, like, the, the garbage, the scene where they're at the dump with the dog dies, the hilarious robot dog yeah. gets burned up. Do you think they put that scene in there as, like, a callback to the sandlot? You're asking the wrong person on the sandlot, but it seems to me that two very different things happen with this yeah. dog to the point where it's it's beyond a callback. I don't know. I you Like I said, I don't really know that movie that well. but um, That poor dog... Yeah, but it's so clearly a robot. When they show the bag, it's they show the dog, they put in, and it's like, it's just like, it's like turning at like 90 degree angles. So like one part will move and then like another part will, it's like doing the robot in the bag. (laughs) (laughs) They just bought an actual robot and threw it in the bag. I'm trying to think of other, like, really specific time travel things that drove me crazy. Because the movie clearly tries to, like, set up a hierarchy of, like, this is good, but this is bad. And so during the section where 
Ashton Kutcher is a bro, what is the movie trying to say is like good and what is bad? Because it all seems bad, but they play it like, yeah, he's like a cool bro and everybody thinks he's super hot and people are giving him free answers. But it's also like people who, the people who are his friends are the people who we see throwing popcorn at Thumper. Yeah, being assholes. Being assholes. But um, the movie doesn't really like condemn that segment of the movie. It's only like... It just stuff that happens. Maybe that that part of the movie serves more as a he got what he deserved for the life he was living because he ends up murdering his girlfriend's brother. <laughs> yeah, really unnecessary. After he was almost proposing to her. Yeah, and he had like pepper sprayed him in the face. Like he really. Yeah, why was he carrying pepper spray? Because remember the the car got fucked up. Oh yeah. Kind of fucked up his car. They're like, how did someone do this in front of the frat house? And there's the the dog collar, and then they have to have the ADR line. Where, where she's did like, My okay? Brother. Where did he get that dog collar? Did he have it ever since he was in juvie? Yeah, like, and really, like, if if even if my dog was murdered <laughs> ten years prior or whatever, I doubt I would recognize it. Oh, bless you. But I doubt I would recognize. Like dog's collar 10 years later if I saw it. And honestly, yeah, well, also, the movie recognizes that nobody would recognize it because they ADR that Amy Smart line where she's like, my brother. So you know what it means because I, you would have no yeah, idea because what that means. Actually, it makes more sense that, that that dog collar comes from Thumper than it does from the yeah. brother. Man, okay. And really, I guess I'm trying to, I'm starting to run out of stuff with time travel. So I will say this about Thumper and the movie in general. What's with this people having sex in rooms that are well lit right next to a, a person having a seizure? This happens like three times in the movie at least where he's laying on top of his bed holding a book reading like he just fell asleep and he's like, oh, oh, like shaking his blood <laughs> out of his nose. And then the person four feet away from him in the bed is plowing somebody like having loud gross (laughs) sex right next to him or and not even realistic sex because there's that scene where ashton kutcher and amy smart are supposed to be having sex but she is wearing a sheet she's wearing a sheet and then he's laying on top of the sheet and he has a sheet on him too (laughs) but then there's also like that there's that scene where Thumper is, uh, he opens the blanket and he's, there's like that, like, model in the bed. He's, like, going down on her in his, like, goth bed that has leather and cramps posters and all sorts of weird neon lights and shit all over it. Yeah, I don't know. There's <laughs> so much stuff like that. But I really I really like that guy who played Thumper. He is Ethan the Supley. Yeah, he's the guy from My Name is Earl. Another Scientologist too. Oh yeah. Boo. He's a Scientologist. No way. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah, sorry to ruin oh, it. Basically his, every his feeble mind. Everybody on My Name is Earl basically is a Scientologist. Even Jason Lee. Jason Lee, Lee is a Scientologist. <gasps> no. Yeah, sorry to bum me out. <laughs> oh man. I love Jason Lee. Oh, now you can't. Oh, that's so disappointing. <laughs> Jason Lee! Oh, I thought he was so much smarter than that. Wait, is that mean, um, Presley? Uh, I can't remember. It seems like she would be, but I can't say what's for sure. What's her first name? Jamie Presley. Jamie Presley. Yeah. Man, I'm so disappointed about Jason Lee. 
He seems so much smarter than that. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, he was in Dreamcatcher, so... Oh my god, future secret cinema movie Dreamcatcher, Jesus. Aw, Jason Lee. Well, he's also in a lot of uh, Kevin Smith movies, so... Yeah. But he's also, keep in mind, he's also like a, he's a professional skateboarder, so... Really? He'll, he'll take whatever work he can get. I do not know a lot about Jason Lee. No. I'm learning that tonight. <laughs> Skateboard Scientologist, Yeah. <laughs> That's his band name. Skateboard Scientologist. I'm almost positive he's in a band, too, but <laughs> I, I, I can't prove that one. Um, of course he's in a band. He's got to make money for Scientology. Yeah. you got to be like, hey, if you like my music, I have this great book that you should read. <laughs> <laughs> also, okay. This movie has another thing that every... Almost every bad movie does, which is they have a good movie in the bad movie, which yeah. is the 13-year-olds all go see Seven during the the opening 30 minutes where everything is bleak and horrible. They, of course, go see Seven. Can you imagine you just uh, watched a woman and her baby get blown up by dynamite, dynamite? And then you're like, let's go see Seven. Yeah, to the point where they're like, he, Evan, during the scene where they're walking into the theater, is like, seriously, guys, what happened? I can't remember. I blacked out before the dynamite exploded. <laughs> it's, like, still that fresh where no one has clued him in. And they go see Seven, and, which I, like, every time I watch that movie, it's, like, really, like, why? Oh, why so... did they pick Seven? Is that what, like, they were aspiring to make, like, that type well, of movie? Well, okay, I think maybe they saw Seven as a pun on seven and how often seven comes up in the movie because remember the flash forward from when he's 13 to when he's in college and he starts going back to his blackouts is seven years later is that it though i don't know that's the only connection i can really make because otherwise there's absolutely no reason for them to have gone to see seven because the other movie that was playing was dumb and dumber yeah and that would have been a way better choice yeah Watching Jeff Danielson's diary, it would probably make you feel a little better about a murder yeah. that you committed. But no, I think it's... Also, they didn't invite Lenny. Oh, yeah. Was he still in the mental hospital? Probably by that point. Seven was probably a bit much <laughs> for him. Yeah. But no, but I, I think it had to have been like the directors are like, Seven is our favorite movie. And so they would go see Seven because I saw Seven at that age and they just didn't think about the fact that like at that point in the movie, it's too much. It's like <laughs> so much has happened. And well, then... It also, isn't that movie rated R? Oh yeah. They're but, 13. Yeah, but don't think too hard about that. Okay. I saw every every teenager has seen an R-rated movie when they weren't supposed to. I saw Blue Velvet when I was like 15 in theaters as a midnight. And, uh, yeah, like, I actually, and I remember buying tickets to Lemony Snicket to sneak into Life Aquatic, because Life Aquatic was the type of movie they would let teenagers into, because it has boobs in it. Boobs. Uh, boobs. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's, I think it was the director's Love 7, and they wanted to put it in, and it was just a bad choice. But then they have, like, that, that moment where, uh... Tommy is, like, riffing on the gluttony scene in Seven, which is just, like, again, they just, like, keep making these, like, weird tonal choices of, like, like, what is, what is the intended thing we're supposed to feel other than, like, oh, yeah, Tommy is a douchebag, but, like, are they, is it, like, oh, yeah, we'll know he's, he's crazy because only someone who's crazy could laugh at Seven, is, like, like. Do you think they chose Seven because that's who they thought their audience was? 
could be like people who like seven like dark things sad sad things yeah tragedy but seven again seven is brilliant because seven teases you with these crimes it doesn't kind of just like like when after morgan freeman and brad pitt leave the crime scene they don't like go home and gwyneth paltrow is like smoking crack and is like where the fuck have you been yeah <laughs> and morgan freeman doesn't like like go home and like beat a child or anything like that it like knows to calm down <laughs> like let, yeah, let leaves, the audience breathe for it a leaves bit. the main characters alone <laughs> yeah at least for a while until yeah. it's like a good good point to terrorize them. Yeah. It's yeah. The basically the whole every main all the major structural problems with this movie boil down to they didn't bother to actually come up with real rules for their time travel. Yep. And then they couch that totally illogical movie in Ashton Kutcher. In Ashton Kutcher and a tone of just like outright depression. And they just... Is this the only dramatic movie he did during that time period? I would have to imagine so, because even if this was a success, I don't remember anyone being like, oh, this this is going to mean more dramatic work. I think it was just people bought tickets. Well, and he... I know Ashton Kutcher was in that Steve Jobs movie. <laughs> I guess that counts, yeah. But that was many years later. Yeah, that was, what, this year? Last year? Who knows? Sometime after Steve Jobs died. Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs. Rest in peace, Steve Jobs. <laughs> I hope he's in heaven going, oh, Ashton, Ashton Kutcher, you did such a good job. I'm sure he's not. But. No. Yeah. Steve Steve Jobs is probably, in, if, if ever a person deserved to be in purgatory, it's <laughs> Steve Jobs. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Statements. Catholic. <laughs> Alright, uh, well, I mean, okay, do you have anything else you want to get into with this? I kind of, I really mostly had those big points to harp on, so I don't have too much else to say. Just, I would like to mention, I would like to give a quick shout out to the moment where Ashton Kutcher says the N-word in this movie, which is... Still catches me off guard every time. He, I think it caught him off guard. Yeah. You want to give a shout out to this? Shout out to how weird it is. That yeah. like in okay. this movie, among all the other things, the only moment that really shocks me is yeah, like, the that's fact true. that they're like, all right, let's throw one N-word in here deep into the movie. <laughs> Just see if, see who's paying attention at yeah, this point. Yeah, you're right. That probably is the most shocking moment of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> they don't... I mean, can you imagine like... I'm trying to think of like okay, a Okay, but if we're doing shout outs to really weird parts of this movie, I would like to do a shout out to the part where Ashton Kutcher brings that girl back to his dorm room and they are fooling around and he's getting beer out of the fridge and all of a sudden she's like, oh, do you have any incense? And she's looking under his bed like through all his stuff and she finds his journals. She's like, read me something from your journals when you were a little boy. Can you imagine you meet you you meet like a hookup person at a bar and they're like, 
Read me your personal diary. Yeah, that whole that whole scene is hilarious. Because that, first of all, that woman only exists again as a plot device. Because everything she does is so arbitrary. But she gets that out. And he's like, fine, I'll do it. At first, he's like, no, and no, then, no, 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 no. And then he reads, like, an incredibly painful part yeah, of the part his journal. Yeah, the part is like, I, he's like, say, like, the very first sentence is something like, I, I can't stop thinking about my dog's screams. <laughs> like, something <laughs> like that. And he, and she's like, she's still looking, and she's not like, okay, stop. She's just like. She actually says, go on. Go on. And she just, like, sits in silence. But. The, what was funny to me about that scene is that after that, he starts reading, and he blacks out for the first time, and he, so he, like, relives this thing, but he, like, wakes up, and he's, like, unconscious, and she's still there being like, like, jeez, dude, way to, <laughs> way to black out, and he gets up and just, like, leaves her. And yeah. just, just like, I gotta, I gotta go, I gotta, gotta deal with this, and she's never seen again, and no. she's just, like, completely... Well, she doesn't exist anymore because he time travels. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, just the, like, her, the how throwaway her existence is, but also just the idea that, like, if you were on a date with somebody, and they were reading about, reading to you a story about their dog being murdered, and they blacked out, that you would just sit and watch them, and then when they came back, you'd be like, you fucking, you fucking baby. I can't believe you passed out. Wuss! <laughs> you ain't getting none of this. I also would like to acknowledge the best line of this movie. It's actually two lines, both uttered by Ashton Kutcher. I can't even remember the context of this line, but Ashton Kutcher at some point turns to someone and says, you think you know me? I don't know me! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's both lines? Yeah, that's both lines. I would also like to give a runner-up mention to the prisoner who says uh, to Ashton Kutcher, shit on my dick or blood on my knife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, gross. Yeah, real gross. Ugh. <laughs> Which also, but the way in which... That's like the only significant line of dialogue in that scene. So you know that was another one of those like fucking nailed it screenwriter <laughs> moments. And there's two of them. They're like, we know what prison's like. And it's crazy because like, okay, like I've talked to you about this before. The way I like to write is with another person because I know like I'll come up with something and be like, this is fucking great. This is the smartest idea ever. And you pitch it to someone else and they're like, what are you fucking talking about? I don't get where you're coming from. Two people wrote this. So that means one person was like, shit on my dick or blood on my knife. And the other guy was like, yeah, let's go get it. Let's get a beer. We've done right for the night. <laughs> like these. And they, and then they like convinced producers. They got Ashton Kutcher looked at it and he was like, shit on my dick, blood on my knife. I want to do that scene. I can't wait to do this scene. And I'm going to executive produce this movie. They cast... They cast the guy, and that guy probably had to, like, shave his head and, like, maybe, like, work out a little bit to get that right muscle tone yeah. for that scene, and had to practice it. He had to get it, that like, neo-Nazi look. He had to, like, sit at home with his wife and be like, all right, honey, I'm going to read some lines to you. <laughs> you know, just play off of me. And just had to get that, like, angry, like, shit in my dick or blood in my knife tone just right. <laughs> Every time you say it, I think about it more. It's gross. It's really I, gross. I'm, there's something, like... I just realized what I'm thinking of is a moment in Night of the Living Dong, uh, 
uh, <laughs> where, <laughs> like something basically very similar to that line happened. So I'm trying to think of a variation on that line, and the best they came up with was poop on my stick, guts on my shiv. <laughs> just, I'm really saddened they didn't try to make it rhyme, just to like really push it into total tastelessness. What rhymes with dick? I guess shit on my dick and blood on my stick, something like that. Uh, what rhymes with blood? <laughs> Be my wife and blood on my knife, something like that. Uh, there's like, I mean, it's yeah. all bad, but come on. Like, yeah, first drafts. You're already going that far. Why not make it rhyme? Yeah, rhyming makes it more serious. Rhyming makes it cooler. As one of my friends says, it rhymes, so it must be true. <laughs> Any final thoughts? Uh, I would also like to acknowledge that baby Percy Jackson did a pretty great job saying fuck bag at least three times. Yeah. Baby, uh, baby Evan was the better of the child actors. Yeah. Kaylee is neutral good. Like, didn't affect the movie negatively or positively. Just (laughs) stayed out of the way. Uh, Baby Tommy is hilarious. Oh, that, God, That kid yeah. is like, someone was like, all right, no restraint. Uh, who is the, the, have you ever seen Nicolas Cage before? Just do what he does. <laughs> the whole <laughs> movie. Uh, he's great. Uh, what's, and then Lenny, too. Lenny is, um, Lenny is pretty bad, though. He kind of doesn't really, they don't give him much to do. What's the, what's the one really good Tommy line? Or, uh, drop it or I'll slit your mother's throat in your sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's but that's pretty much it. I highly, I mean, as much as we trash this movie, I would highly recommend it for comedic value. If you have a dark sense of humor, I don't think we did enough justice to that in this episode. It is I think hilarious. We laughed, I think we laughed enough at terrible things for people to know yeah, that yeah. you need a dark sense. If of you humor. if you think if you think you can laugh at this, you will laugh at this. Uh, it's it's that type of movie. Um, but. Other than that, if you don't think you're going to laugh at it, it's another great example of a movie to watch uh, to see what a bad screenplay looks like. And um, and also, it's a great movie to watch and try and figure out what the tone is. Because yeah. again, as we mentioned, we I still have no idea what this movie is trying to convey. Like, what is the lesson of this yeah, movie? Yeah, okay. That's our final thought. Let's break that down because the lesson seems to ultimately be if you if you don't try to help somebody if you just completely avoid them then that will help them i think uh, yeah i think or to simplify that further accept your fate accept your fate yeah don't try to change don't try to change anything yeah or or even the alternate which is time travel is bad yeah time travel is bad yeah (laughs) <laughs> Which, I think that's the lesson of every time travel movie. Except maybe Back to the Future. But no, even Back to the Future, it's bad. Because he has to undo everything that happened because yeah. he traveled in time. Yeah, yeah, time travel is bad. Alright, so lesson of Butterfly Effect is time travel is bad. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Good one, Butterfly Effect. Alright. I learned so much. Not enough. Yeah. All right, well then, I guess that's it for this week. Um, we will be back shortly with another another episode of the Secret Cinema. I'm Paolo. Secret Cinema. I'm Paolo. I'm Carrie. And see you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.
The Secret Cinema is produced and edited by Paolo Caro. All theme songs were performed and recorded by Ricardo Ortiz. Any additional music or samples come from the film covered on this week's episode. All logos and artwork created by Carrie Chafee. You can follow Carrie on Instagram at Carrie Saw This and see more of her artwork at www.carriechafee.com. You can watch Paolo's short films at vimeo.com slash paolocarone or read more of his ramblings about film at letterbox.com slash paolocarasmus. The Secret Cinema is a commentary and criticism podcast, and its use of film dialogue and film music for illustrative purposes falls under the fair use provisions of the U.S. copyright. Thanks again for listening.